Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisor Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, episode 34. I'm your host, Pavel Bramensky, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Jamie Rao. Jamie is a principal and senior wealth advisor at Fiducia Wealth Management. Since 1999, Jamie has worked closely with Canadian families and business owners to help them maximize enjoyment of their wealth. Over the years, Jamie has developed in-depth expertise in all areas of wealth management, including portfolio construction, risk management, insurance planning, retirement planning, and tax planning, estate and legacy planning. He particularly enjoys working with owner-managers to help them unlock the value of their business and secure the wealth they have built for their family. Jamie holds uh, the professional designations on a number of professional designations, certified financial planner, chartered investment manager, registered to determine consultant, chartered life underwriter, trust and estate practitioner, certified hedge fund specialist, and financial management advisor. He's also a fellow of the Canadian Securities Institute, a member of the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners in Canada and the Canadian Tax Federation. Jamie, welcome to the show. Uh, Nice to see you today, Pavel. How are you? Thank you. So I'm doing fantastic, and uh, I'm so excited. So when I was going actually over your your professional designations, I think I'll ask you a question about it because there's quite a few. So, but without further ado, let's let's get this started. So tell me in your own words, what do you do really, and who do you serve in your firm? Well, I think as you kind of alluded to in the intro, my primary clientele is, is owner managers, entrepreneurs, and professionals, essentially business clientele, and that's it, it, probably a function of. Uh, the fact that I understand them better and that they probably seem to like me better than other markets. And that's that's probably because I started out very young, right? When you're in your early 20s and you're trying to get an audience with people that have money, it's very difficult to get a meeting with a senior executive at a big company, right? You don't have enough gray hair. You haven't had enough years under your belt. They just don't want to talk to you. But, you know, an owner-manager, probably a higher probability, they started when they were young and had to fight to, to get their voice heard. And they would, they just seem more open to give you an audience. So going back that far, that's kind of how it just congealed into that being the focus. Now, I, I have a bunch of different types of clients. They're not all owner managers, but most of the new ones coming on board are. And that's where most of the work gets done because they're just more complex cases and, and there's more on the table. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, you started 1999. So congratulations on 20 years in the business. 20 years down, 20 to go. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, so let's talk about some of the details in terms of your firm. How is how is your really your firm structure? We'll come back to the is, um, uh, business owner, operator, uh, manager, because that's, that's I think, super valuable for especially younger folks joining the industry. But, you know, in terms of number of staff, a number of clients, and maybe some of the licensing that, that you have, can you share a little bit more about the business? Sure. Well, let's start with the licensing stuff. I work out of a mutual fund dealership called World Source Financial Management, so that's that's where my investment licensing resides. So that allows you to do things like mutual fund ETFs. They have GICs and and that kind of stuff on the shelf as well. So have a life insurance license and an active and sickness license, as well as what I consider to be a financial planning license with uh, with the CFP, which I think should be table stakes if you're going to be in that arena. In terms of practice practice is very small. There's just myself and my client service manager, who's Lisa, and she's magnificent. Couldn't live without her. So we're really kind of, we're a small shop. In terms of clientele, 
it's it varies a little bit depending on how you parse it out. But at the top end, we have about 90 client families. Mm-hmm. Probably only about 70 of those are what I would call active, where there's kind of ongoing work taking place. What else do you want to know? Uh, yeah, just the number of stuff clients. It's and It sounds like your clients are more complex, right? So, and I guess you, you have your license, uh, several different, uh, uh, you, have, you have several different licenses, but I think this is good. So in terms of just the business, the practice, you mentioned that you started young and, you know, what really propelled, propelled you to start this business? Like how, how did, take me back to your early days and, you know, what made you become an advisor in the first place? It's a good question. And it's, it's a little bit of an interesting story for me. So I grew up in Northern Ontario, just outside of Sudbury. And throughout university, I worked in the nickel smelter in the summers. So the first, I worked there for four summers, I believe. And the first three of those were in the actual smelter itself. So doing all kinds of fun stuff like jacking the furnace and recycling the waste product back through the grates into the top of the furnace. So let's just call it some pretty dirty work. At one point, I was a a human pipe cleaner with brushes crawling through a flue to clean it out. So these are the kind of things that make you appreciate, you know, getting an education and having other employment opportunities. (laughs) But at the tail end of that, when they kind of realized that, that I was like the one commerce student among a bunch of, you know, metallurgical students and, and, and whatnot, they, they kind of grabbed me out and stuck me for the last year in the accounting department, right? So it, as it turned out, after I, I graduated and, and was contemplating what was going to be next, they kind of offered me a job on a contract basis anyway. So I, I went back and was doing that and eventually got what we would call grieved out of it by the union so that uh, a more senior person came in and took the job. And then I was just kind of in limbo, right? So my, at the time, my sister was living in Windsor. So I went down there to visit her. And I didn't want to be a freeloader, so I kind of put my name in at temp agencies to try and get some kind of job to, so I could spend some time there and, and hang out with her and my brother-in-law and, and not uh, not just be a suck on their resources. And it turns out the first interview I got was with a financial planner down, down there, a fellow by the name of John Toast, and originally got hired by his wife as like an admin clerk to just whatever, do filing kind of admin stuff, right? And probably two, two and a half weeks into that, I got to meet John as he meets the new employees. And he had a pretty significant operation at that point with, you know, five, six, seven employees running his, his pretty substantial practice. And very early in that conversation, when he realized that I already had completed the Canadian securities course, <laughs> I, I had completed level one of the CFA examinations. He went, well, what, what did we hire you for? What's going on here? So things kind of changed course at that point when he kind of realized my background and, and I started kind of working really closely with him. So I ended up spending four years there and probably within six or eight months, the, the, the original clerical position had morphed into, you know, sitting in the room with him in client meetings and, and starting to take over some of those client meetings for him. Right now, up to that point, in my mind, I was going to be an analyst. I was going to go get my CFA. I was going to, you know, be a PM or I was going to, you know, sit in a windowless room reading 10Ks and annual reports and writing research for people I'll never see. So what happened? What what changed? (laughs) Well, what changed is I got to interface with the end user. Mm -hmm. I I got to sit there with clients and I I saw his practice and I saw the impact that he was having on their lives. And it was so much greater than investment performance. It was so much greater than that one piece. 
And it really changed my perspective. I, I kind of probably six weeks before I was due to write my level two CFA exam, CFA exam I kind of said, this is not what I want to do anymore. So it, it shifted gear pretty substantially. Just the accident of having that be the place that I call in to, you know, avoid freeloading off my sister. Yes. So it yeah. changed my perspective and, and I kind of rerouted my whole plan from there. Is this the impact that you've seen that um, he had on, on the clients, working with clients in their lives? Like, is this why this business exists for you? Like, what, what, is this the, the reason why Kedusha Wealth uh, exists today? Like, why does this work better for you? Yeah, it, it really is because I, I'm one of these, I'm one of the people in the industry that really is here for the work. You know, I didn't pick this industry because it was a good way to make money or you could set your own schedule or you could, you know, have more vacation than other people or some of the reasons that, that it's it's attractive to a lot of folks. It it really is about the work. So seeing that impact and, you know, seeing the level of trust that John's clients put in him and the peace of mind that it gave them, that there was somebody out there worrying about all those same things that they worry about, that even if it was just to listen to their concerns and help them not let it detract from the rest of what they needed to do in their life, it just, it was something very interesting to me because I wasn't ever somebody who would have otherwise sought out a, a job where there was a large sales function or where there was a large part of it that required you to network and interact with large groups of people because that's not in my personality at all. I don't like big parties. I like to have one set of friends over for dinner and spend time with them. Right. So it's it's a little bit different than I guess with some of some of the personalities that it naturally be attracted to this kind of business. Yeah. Would be I don't know if that helps answer your question or not. It does because I think it shows that the, there's another path here in this business, right? I mean, you didn't choose the easy path because you know being independent uh, in this business and it, it's it's especially in Canada is difficult. So I'll, I want to come back to it and I want to come back about to, to your process. But let's let's start think, thinking about talking about the wealth management. How do you see right now after 20 years in the business? How do you think about wealth management? You know, how do you approach advising and serving clients? And let's maybe dig in a little bit into your process so we can we can share a little bit of that for the listeners. Sure. Well, I think maybe one of the things that I've I've learned or taught myself by trial and error over this first 20 years that, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of having a written plan, right? If you don't write it down, it's, it's never going to happen and all these, and these things are valid and they're true and, and they're very important. But at this point, I kind of see for myself and in, in my practice anyway, that it's it's even that much more important to have a methodology, like a systematic way of just viewing financial planning and wealth management. And I don't mean, you know, FP Canada's six-step process. <laughs> I, I mean more of a philosophical vantage point. And, and for myself in, in my practice, I call that a framework for financial decision making. And it's just a lens you, you use to look at every different piece and facet of somebody's financial life so that it ends up focused in on what it needs to be, right? And it's not the nuts and bolts of working through an actual plan, throwing in the raw data into the hopper and seeing what comes out. It really revolves for me around three parameters, okay. and that's security, efficiency, and enjoyment, right? So any financial decision we're going to be making for a client, we always want to look at it through the context of, is this improving the security of my wealth? Is it improving the efficiency of my wealth? And is it improving my enjoyment of my wealth? And I've kind of found that anything we're kind of grappling with, mm -hmm. if you put it through those three things, it gives 
gives you a lot of clarity in terms of what approach you should be taking. And it can sound a bit hokey and all that kind of stuff, but in reality, there's not much that we are setting out to do that isn't or shouldn't be targeted to one of those areas. Excellent. So quick question here. Is this, is this um, I understand the framework and the three components of it. Is this something that you actually bring up in a client conversation when, for example, you're meeting with potential new prospect and you're evaluating whether it's a good fit for you? Do you talk to them about it? Do you, do you share the framework with them and, and do, you, do you use this in the conversation with them just to make sure that they sort of share the same approach uh, or maybe they understand how you approach? Yeah, and it's a really good question because uh, it's it's maybe not as rigid or structured as you might think if I'm going to say yes, right? It's it's more targeted to things that they say where I'll pull it out and kind of bring it back, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of my process really revolves around discovery. I would say that I, I sometimes have a protracted discovery process where I really I really deign to start acting and giving advice until I'm really sure I know what I'm doing. And and really what I mean by that is very often folks will show up to you with a burning question in their mind. There's one thing that is the catalyst that put them at the table across from you. Yeah. And they really just want an answer to that. Yeah. Right? And and it can be difficult because sometimes answering that thing can lead you to getting a piece of business or making a sale. And there's an immediate reward to answering that one question. But you run the risk of getting caught up in what I would call fishbowl planning, where you're just looking at the things in that little bowl and nothing else. And I found that when you do that, you very often come back and think, well, that wasn't really an optimal decision, because if I had really looked at this and this, I would have done that a little bit differently. Right. So this is the local maximum, right? This is not a global maximum. And as I understand, actually, that's a really great point about financial planning, right? Because if you don't understand the whole situation, like you are, you're at risk of making or advising to the client or making suboptimal, suboptimal decisions. So, so it sounds like your, your approach is very front low. That, right spend a lot of time up front with a client yes and how do you and how do you really take this conversation when when the client has this burning question they really want to know am i going to be able to retire should i take the you know should i buy annuity for example or should i commute my pension or do something else how do you take that question and say hold on we will we'll address it but first let me show you this is what we need to do and it's going to take a little, take a little bit of time but here's the value for you yeah that's a, another good question i think sometimes it's as simple as saying look i can give you a quick answer to that mm-hmm. or we can give you a complete answer to everything so that we make sure that the answer we put in place for this actually works and gives you the outcome that you're looking for I love right that. because it, you know and if you explain to somebody if we do this without considering everything else there's a very high probability we don't make the best decision here mm-hmm. that's usually enough for them to go well i want to make the best decision <laughs> you know can we and you know sometimes you're under enough pressure that you can't do that when somebody shows up and they have a you know pension options from their employer sitting in front of them and right. they've been sitting on their hands for four months and they have two weeks before the default becomes the answer, then you don't have a choice, right? But the truth is, if they give me the information, if Mm -hmm. they give me my discovery, Mm -hmm. I don't need that much time, Mm -hmm. right? It's usually getting all the data in hand that takes the largest amount of time. Once I have everything, I can kind of pinpoint those things fairly quickly, but it's, you know, depending on how organized somebody is, is a, a large determiner of how, how deftly they're going to be able to put together that list. Because I don't ask for a little bit of information. I ask for a lot of information. 
Excellent. Right. Okay, perfect. So now let's go for a little bit further. So we have the framework and uh, you let's say you've uh, you had the first meeting with a the client. Then I guess the question is, you know, how do you then get more tactical and how do you transition? You mentioned the six uh, areas of finance or six steps of financial planning or FPSC or FP Canada actually right now. So how do you get more tactical then? Uh, just do you do a lot of work up front, create a plan basically based on the situation, then uh, have a series of meetings with clients when you address all the different areas? Do you try to do this in one meeting? I'm always curious how advisors approach that because there's so many different approaches here. Yes, there are. And certainly it's never one meeting. I might be able to do that or pull it off in kind of a very standard basic case. But any any kind of planning that involves owner managers where there's one or more corporations involved, that is just never going to happen. Right, because I'm not gonna. You're not gonna have their accountant in that meeting with you to answer all the questions you need to know before you can even start breaking that apart. So, it's very, very rare that I would ever even contemplate trying that. But how I approach things, and and I also get a lot of flack from this from from uh, people in the industry because it, you know there's a very valid point out there that if you don't put a price on yourself right away, you put a price of zero. Right, right. Mm-hmm. but. It really depends, in my experience anyway, on how you frame that to a client. And so a good example is I just had a a new client come in last week, or no, a week ago, Friday. And uh, he was referred to me by one of the accountants that I work with. Seems like a nice guy. I think it'll probably end up being a good relationship. But we kind of went through the initial discussion, and he was he was an agile guy, so he got a lot of the discovery to me ahead of time. So we had something real to talk about in the meeting, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I kind of said, "What are your questions for me before we go on to the next step?" And and I knew what the the burning question was going to be. He's like, "How much do I have to pay you? Where does it go?" And so the segue to that is, for me, I usually just explain it along the terms of, "I'm in this for the long term." And I want long-term clients, right? So the only way you're going to be a long-term client for me is if you really trust me and if you really trust that I can deliver value to you, right? So I would much rather have an opportunity to deliver some of that value before we start an engagement where we're putting a contract in place about how I'm going to get paid and what I'm going to get paid because I want you to be fully comfortable going at value, okay? So it, the other the other part of it is that I don't necessarily know at that point what I'm going to charge you or how I'm going to charge you. I don't know if you're going to decide that I'm going to be your investment manager and I'm going to get paid from that. I don't know if you've got somebody that you're in love with and it's your family member that always is going to manage your money, but you want my advice on it anyway. I don't know any of these things. So what I like to say is let me go away and do version one of a very rough sketch of a plan. So at least we know what framework we're going to have to be doing this going forward. And I tell them that at that point in time, I will know enough to make a recommendation to you about where I think I can actually help you, what kind of value I think I can deliver, and what the compensation arrangement would look like if you want to proceed. Makes sense. And generally speaking, they're very comfortable with that. Right. Because <laughs> it's it's like a test drive. It's a, you know, a no obligation, no cost. Free trial. Trial. <laughs> you know, you run a software company, you give everybody a free trial because it's really hard to convince somebody to pay for something before they've seen it and end up with them being a long-term client or customer. 
Exactly. I mean, the same thing. I mean, free trial, we actually do a free trial and we do a 30 days money back guarantee. So even if somebody doesn't, you know, if the, even if the first payment is going to be processed after two weeks, then within 30 days, they can still come back to us and say, hey, this is probably not a good, great fit for us. No problem. No questions asked. They can use the software for a month and a half. And really what you, uh, and, and this is really the, related to the business model, because similarly to you, you know, we want to have long term clients as well, because we're, we're building long term relationship. We want to make sure that we are an essential part of, 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 the, of their processes. So it sounds like you were doing the same thing uh, when you really prove the value initially, right? And by how long actually, it's, again, it's probably client dependent, but how long does it take you for, for, for a client to come up with this rough idea that, you know what, this is how you should proceed? Is this, you know, a couple of hours? Is this a couple of days? Because again, I mean, clients, you are dealing with pretty complex clients and it may take you yeah. quite a bit of time. And you know what, there will be cases when this is not going to work out. But I think, I, I mean, I, I think the approach is great. But uh, I just wanted to understand a little bit more about how much effort actually you put into it. Maybe your process is so systematized that it doesn't take that much time to come up with the first draft plan. Well, the, the only real answer to that is that it varies widely. Right. <laughs> okay. it, it, so, and it depends on the complexity that's, that's put in front of you. So, I, I mean, for, for, this, for this fellow that I was using as an example, it's, it's, very, it, it's a matter of an hour. Because once right. I have the information, I can look at it and say, these are the investment assets on the table. At, according to my fee schedule, that's going to pay me this. Is that enough to satisfy what I view kind of as my internal minimums and that kind of thing? Or is there something else? And in this case, you know, he also tells me that he has a, a 79-year-old mother who he and his brother take care of, and they're the co-executors. And right now, they're managing her money at the local bank branch. Oh. And there's probably a half a million dollars at the local bank branch. Right. Mm -hmm. So these are the layers that peel away. So that it's it's very likely that he ends up being a pretty decent client and paying less than he's paying to the bank branch now or his mm -hmm. mom. And, you know, everybody ends up better off. But I don't know that until I go through this process. Right. And, you know, if, if I back it up again in terms of what I'm trying to accomplish with a new client, it really is trust. I can't really help anybody unless they really trust me. Right. If they're always looking at any piece of advice through the lens of what's not, what are, what are they not telling me? What's really in this for them that I don't know about? You got to peel away all those things, right? And transparency will help you do that. But I can tell you from experience that when somebody shows up at a meeting and they were referred to you by somebody else, an accountant or another client, and they show up and at the end of the meeting, they take their checkbook out and say, how much do I owe you for today? And you say, put that away. I haven't really done anything of value for you yet. Right. That is a large leap forward in gaining that trust from somebody that's going to pay off for me down the road when I need them to listen to something that they otherwise wouldn't have wanted to listen to or have a predisposition against that's really going to help them. You have much more open ears <laughs> when you kind of take things along that path, right? And it's it's one of the reasons that I would say one of the points of pride I have in my business is that probably 70% or more of my clients have been clients for more than a decade. So there's very little turnover in my book. Not that it doesn't happen. It happens to everybody. <laughs> Anybody who told you, has told you that they never lost a client that they didn't want to lose, that's, that's, it's like the day traders that only tell you about their wins. <laughs> 
I appreciate the transparency and, and there is also some natural turnover as well that happens. But this is actually, I like your process because it's, uh, it's, it's so good and it's so different from the typical kind of, you know, alluded to banks earlier, right? The, the bank approach, right? You're giving value first. You're showing what's possible. You're, you're, you're showing uh, that you can add a lot of value. And I want to talk a little bit about designations because when I, I went very quickly to the designations in the intro, but I think you have, uh, what, eight or nine professional designations. And I also looked at the Global Mail article a competitive advantage for financial professionals when you were quoted just a couple of days ago. So let me just read a quote because there was a question around it. Uh, With the industry trending toward more automation, multidisciplinary advice will be one of the most valuable skill sets you can offer. Pursuing your C requirements in a proactive way, such as expanding professional credentials uh, with a long-term view to diversifications will always be winning strategy, which is basically along the the lines of competitive advantage for uh, financial professionals. But how do you think about your education in your business and how do you use this strategically to, to actually help you generate more value to your clients? Well, I mean, from, from my perspective, there's kind of two ways to view this, right? So for, from a business perspective, you could say, what's going to be the most profitable business model I can put together? And I think it would be hard to argue that that is not specialization, that that is not owning a niche. Some of the most successful in terms of revenue, anyway, advisors out there are the expert in their field. They are the go-to person for this one thing, right? So I think it's very difficult to argue that that is perhaps not the most effective business model from a profitability standpoint. However, if you flip the perspective to the end user, to the client, it's very nice to have an expert in one area come in and take care of one thing. But now I'm back to that fishbowl. Now I'm back to where this one thing is decided by this one person over here. This other thing is another expert and the other thing is the other expert and the other thing is the other expert. And these people don't talk to each other. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing and they don't care because they're in to do their one thing and move on to the next thing, right? So I'm not convinced that that model is the one that delivers the most value to the client because I think what we come to understand the more we're in this business is that no one thing delivers the ultimate value. It's, it's all these things operating together, right? It's, it's whether you have all of the building blocks in place. So when we have specialization, it really falls to the client, the end user, to be the general contractor who's directing all the people building the house. And unless they're trained, skilled, and have the time to do that, use that analogy, what's going to happen to the house? The house is not going to get put together properly, right? So I kind of look at it and go, the most value I can deliver is to be the one who can congeal all that information. And yes, be an expert in some of those areas, but also know enough about the other ones to make sure that everything is pulling in the same direction to be the one that worries about that cohesive strategy for my client when there's a bunch of different complex things going on at once, right? And again, if we back it up and go through that framework of when we're considering any of these things, does it improve the security of my wealth? Does it improve the efficiency of my wealth? Does it improve the enjoyment of my wealth? 
Now, five different clients are going to define what security, efficiency, and enjoyment mean differently, right? Mm -hmm. But once I come to understand that, I can very much intuitively kind of help them see whether or not these things are pushing them down the path they want to be on, right? This is very important in, in the business market where there's corporations and you have accountants and lawyers in the meeting and they all have their own view on things, but they may not know, you know, A, B, and they know C and D and, and so on and so on. You kind of get the picture, right? So for me, many years ago, I kind of decided that I wanted to make a specialty out of being a generalist. And, you know, I carry what some would view as expert level credentials in three or four of the main areas of financial planning, being retirement planning, investment management, insurance, and tax and estate work, right? Mm -hmm. But you you can't drill down enough. I'm not going to be getting my discretionary money management license and trading accounts for clients directly. Because that takes all the time you need to do the other stuff out of the picture. And now you're a specialist. Yeah, you're more of a financial planner. And uh, as you mentioned actually earlier, knowing, uh, being a, you know, an expert in a couple of different areas, maybe not all different areas, but all in a couple of areas, and having uh, substantial knowledge in other areas makes it easier for you to work with other professionals, right? You need to have a certain level of knowledge in the area, for example, tax and legal aspects to be able to work effectively with accountants and lawyers, right? Well, there's a, there's a difference between having your client invite you into the room with their accountant or their lawyer and that accountant or lawyer wanting you there. There's a very big difference between the two. Okay. Right? A lot of people trust their financial planner or advisor enough that they want them there all the time. Mm -hmm. Whether or not the other professionals deem there to be any value, them being present is a very different story. So how do we win? If you don't, if you can't speak the same language as the accountant or the lawyer, if you don't know really in some detail the concepts they're talking about, and if you can't help them connect those to the reality that is the joint client you're serving, then you're really just kind of something that they'd rather not have to deal with. <laughs> and I say that from from experience. And I say that from the, the confidences that have been shared with me with some of the professionals that I work with. Because it's not easy, right? It's not. It's very, very difficult if you're in a meeting with a business client and an accountant is uh, talking about some kind of corporate reorganization with a freeze involved and establishing new companies. And meanwhile, you know what your client's thinking. How much is this going to cost me, right? And what is really in it for me, right? So it, one of the things that, that I've gained out of all the years of doing this is Usually, I can prepare them for that ahead of time. I can give them a very good estimate of what kind of cost they're looking at before the accountant or the lawyer tells them, right? Which, to the accountant and the lawyer, is the biggest favor you can ever do them, right? Because you've already torn the sticker off, <laughs> and you've already prepared the client, not only just for what the cost is, but for what some of the advantages gained or the savings gained or what the value that comes out of that cost is, right? So when you can interact with other professionals that way, they really start to see you as part of their team and they want you involved with not just the clients you already work with, but the ones that you don't already work with. 
Exactly. Wow, this is perfect. I love it. You just broken or shared so many uh, aspects of working with other professionals. And there was one of the questions I had, you know, how do you make sure that you win their hearts and, and, and work with them effectively? But you just talked about, some, uh, about it right now, just having a certain level of knowledge, let me just summarize, being able to talk confidently and, and uh, with knowledge about some of the aspects and really thinking about the uh, certain aspects from their perspective, how do you position the value of what their services can be so that potentially it can lead to more relationships and more referrals. You just mentioned that there was a referral from an accountant you work with. I mean, that's probably the direct result of you working with that accountant or maybe another client. He knew what you can do and what is your expertise. So it's natural for him to introduce. That's exactly right. And I think that advisors should view this the same way as working with a client. So let me explain what I mean by that. And at least to me, the same way that I view taking on a new client through the lens of, I need them to trust me and I need to deliver value to them first before they will trust me. I look at it the same way with other professionals, right? Everybody wants to have an accountant or a lawyer sending them clients, but what they fail to understand is the gravity of that decision for an accountant or a lawyer, anybody who's not a sole practitioner, anybody who's a member of a firm or a partner at a firm, that is neck on the block. If you send your client to somebody who burns them, not only do you you lose that client, your firm is never going to let you forget it. And it can cost you partnership if you haven't made partner yet. (laughs) So these are huge decisions for other professionals to entrust you with uh, making a recommendation that you should handle one of their clients' money. Think about that for a second. Like, how many ways can that go wrong? Many. A lot, right? <laughs> and it may or may not have anything to do with you doing anything wrong. It could just be bad luck, right? It could be the wrong time to have taken on a new investment client and somebody flies planes into a building and the world goes off a cliff, right? From the client's perspective, it's still a problem, right? So when trying to work with other professionals, I, I, I think you need to do it the same way, which is find a way you can help them with something that their clients need mm-hmm. without really much in it for you. <laughs> and I can tell you that, that my largest source of referrals from, from other professionals right now is an accountant. And that's, you know, I didn't get a referral from him for probably three and a half years mm-hmm. after starting working with him. And I had a couple early, one or two of the other referrals that happened before that that didn't lead to any business were problems with insurance portfolios that have been in place for a long time and corporate owned and not in the right place. So it was all admin, right? To make sure things got from A to B in the right place. And at the end of it, his clients took out their checkbook and said, we know you didn't get paid anything for this. How much do we owe you? And I said, don't worry, you're a client of this fella's. I'm happy to help out. They're on the phone back to him saying, what just happened? (laughs) This thing we've been fighting with for five years, haven't been able to get sorted out is now sorted out. It didn't cost us a penny. Like what, you know, what's going on? So, but those things stick. So it's a long game. It's a long game to play, to gain the trust from people that are in that precarious a position when they're going to refer you, especially if you're not with one of the big bank brokerage houses. Absolutely. Right? They can refer you to RBC or Wood Gundy with a little (laughs) more confidence because they can just, the credibility is there. If you're an independent, it's difficult. 
it's difficult for sure. And you know what's you know so much about this. It's uh, I feel like you can probably put together a course for financial advisors on how to work with other professionals, or or we should probably title this episode with that because there's there's a there's a lot of profound and deep knowledge that you have in this area. So you mentioned a couple of things about you know, how the clients typically find you. So are, is most of your really source of your business new business specifically new referrals? Typically, is this how it works right now? How do you typically acquire new clients? Yeah, I would say it's it's almost completely by referral. Okay. I don't do any real marketing of, of any kind, and I haven't for, for a number of years. I mean, I have the standard stuff like newsletters and that can go out, but that's more I view as client service, much more than marketing. Um, very, very rarely, I will get a lead from my website or somebody who's found me on the internet. And then even more rarely, is that in any way a fit with my business, right? It happened once last year, and I can't remember (laughs) the last time that it had. So it really is referrals from existing clients and professionals, right? Right. So there's a a handful of accountants and lawyers that that I I send business to and and they send to me. And it's also important to, to point out here that Nowhere in my career have I ever had a referral arrangement with other professionals that involved any kind of compensation. I don't believe in it. I think it taints the entire thing. I would not be comfortable receiving any payment for referring somebody to an accountant or a lawyer, or I wouldn't be comfortable paying for those kind of referrals either, because I think it... it Whatever whatever transfer of trust happens with a referral, I think disappears if it's being paid for. So wow, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Really good. Okay, so in terms of, I, I can already pick some ingredients that may really make you su- successful in your business, and um, you know, really focusing on. Uh, if you're independent, you really have to pick what you're going to be focused on. You mainly focused on your on on you know, creating marketing campaigns. You decided to be focused on working with other professionals, and it really paid, paid off for you. And it's a long term game, but but there is a long there's a lot of value, and and as you build this relationship, really the value just expands as as you the more the, the longer you work with with other professionals. So, what are some of the things that you think made you successful over over the last 20 years? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, the the one mantra I've kind of repeated to myself over and over through all the ups and downs that you go through in business, and sometimes everything's working even though it maybe shouldn't be, and other times nothing's working even though you feel like you've done everything right, and there's just, there's no really explaining why things haven't fallen in place, but the, the one thing that I kind of maybe console myself with when things aren't going the way I'd like uh, trying to get to sleep is I've always kind of just told myself and taken the approach that if you just do the right things over and over again, eventually the right things will happen. And in a certain way, you have to keep the faith in that, right? Because the, the temptation to start painting outside the lines or you know, readjust that uh, hierarchy of who's who comes first, you or your client. It's very easy to do, and it's very easy to fall into, and it's encouraged a lot by the industry in in the, and the sales culture that's in the industry, right? So, I mean, I like to believe I've been patient, and I like to believe that I've let things happen the right way. So that the clients that I have now will continue to be long-term clients. But the the problem with that is that you don't make a lot of money very quickly. (laughs) And, you know, if I'm 20 years in the business, it's really only the last five that I've, I've had much, I don't want to say financial success. It's not like I was poor or, or whatever, but when 
I left Windsor to go back to where I, I started in the business and stopped working for somebody else and moved to Toronto and kind of took a opportunity with another young advisor who had an existing practice here. I'll give him a shout out. His name was Ryan Small. And he was an extraordinary marketer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, a lot of the clients that I have today are a result of his efforts to get us in front of them. So I still have a lot uh, that I owe to Ryan and a lot that uh, he taught me and a lot that I learned from him when we worked together. Uh, and he eventually moved on to some other things and ended up back in the business somewhere else. But where's I going with this? Um, when I came from Windsor, the starting salary I took as his assistant slash equity buy-in partner was 20000 bucks a year, right? Plus a percentage of whatever you could kill. So, you know, it's not easy to get started doing that. And it's not easy to kind of keep on the path of how you want to be doing things when you need to make money, right? So it's a difficult thing. And I think it's gotten more difficult for young advisors coming into the business. And I think that it's it's kind of going to be a problem in the industry because outside of the career channels at, you know, insurance companies or banks, Mm-hmm. It's. I don't know if I could hang up a shingle today and start out again, right? Yeah, I know. No, we're talking about this is this is all super relevant, and I'm just listening intently because it's it's really really good stuff because it gives a lot of insight into how you build a business, which is great. I mean, that's that's exactly why we're doing this podcast. Just listen to people who've done it, who've built it, and and share share the knowledge with with everybody else. Uh, so I want to talk about a little bit about the new people joining the industry, and maybe we'll talk about the industry as a whole, how it's changing in a second. But just you said it's it has become more. More difficult for new people to join a business and uh, what are some of the opportunities though like do you see some opportunities that uh, some advisors didn't have or new advisors didn't have i don't know five or ten years ago for example like what if you were starting today what would you do <laughs> as i alluded to i'm not sure i would because I, i'm not sure i ever would have been a career career channel kind of guy I have a bit of a problem with authority. <laughs> I have a bit of a problem with doing things the way that other people want them done. So I, I'm not sure for me, it, it would be all that enticing. But I, I mean, I think it's the old thing where you have to kind of go into one of those paths until you cut your teeth and kind of get to the point where you have some kind of critical mass and then you can make a move and change that game a little if you want. But one of the things I would really suggest for anybody who wants to not be in the institutionalized environment for their entire career is to find a mentor outside of it, right? Because myself, having started out uh, and ended up working with John, he really was a, a mentor to me. And he offered to sell me a very substantial portion of his business at a very attractive price. But the way my life was at that point in time, I needed to move to Toronto for personal reasons because I was going to get married to somebody who lives here. Important. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, at the time it was, it was, you know, you could buy a $40 million book at 0% financing and pay me whenever you want over however long and I'm going to stick around. Or, you know, you could move to Toronto, start from scratch and take a $20,000 a year salary. You know, wow. Hindsight, uh, hindsight, hindsight, you know, I, I, I'm no longer married to that particular person, but I'm right where I should be in my life and that's here, right? So I don't, I'm not one of these people that looks back and has any kind of regrets. It's just amusing when you say it out loud. I saw you put your head down <laughs> and yeah. kind of shake it a little because, you know, if somebody offered somebody that today, they'd move anywhere on the planet for it almost, right? So it, 
you know, it is what it is. And as I said, I ended up in exactly the right place and that I couldn't imagine myself being happier in my business or with my family than, than I am now. So no regrets, only gratitude for ending up where I have. Amazing, amazing stuff. Because the thing is, I mean, it's really about the definition of what is, what is success for you. And, and it's, uh, it might be different, as you said, for you know, security, efficiency, enjoyment for different people might, may, may mean different things. And that's part of the conversation with clients you have. And, but I think the one thing that really stands out here in an interview that you're really good at building those relationships and people. So you can be in front of, you can basically be on the recipient front of those great offers potential opportunities and that's a really good takeaway here so i want to ask you one more question here about uh, just a couple of questions before we wrap up here but how do you think the financial advice is going to evolve here in canada like what 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 are you seeing over the last couple of years what what do you think is going to happen and uh you know is there anything that that, that you see is happening right now that you know some some other people may not see at this point well i don't know if i see anything that others don't see it, you know obviously the big trend the big conversation in the industry uh, at least on the investment side is the whole robo advisor phenomenon and and how that's going to change the game entirely and and it most certainly is and robo advisory is going to be a real thing it's going to be a thing that captures uh, a, a large part of the market but it's never going to be everything there's there's always going to be at least in my horizon <laughs> there's always going to be a, a qualitative and emotional aspect to this kind of planning that I don't think can be replaced by machine learning anytime soon right so I kind of look at it as more as another tool in the toolbox right the these advance, advancements in technology are going to really just improve our ability to deliver services to our clients. So if you have a robo-advisor element, it's going to systemize some of the mundane kind of activities that we historically have spent a whole lot of time on that may not have delivered a ton of value, right? So having, you know, a mutual fund advisor say, have their value proposition tied up in, I'm going to trade these mutual funds for you to the goal of beating the market, that was never really a thing that was going to happen, right? So it, at least it, it, we're stripping away some of that. And, and how I often describe this to clients is that when it really comes down to it, investment management is largely a commodity. It's largely a commodity. It, when you get so, and I mean that in two ways, at, at the lower end, you can replace the things that are being done in a bank branch with a robo-advisor platform at a lower cost and not give up anything in terms of results, right? When you get to the higher end, once you get to a certain amount of money, nobody's going to put it in a black box with a machine and press the button and walk away, unless you're the one that built it and that's how you got your money, right? But the vast majority of people want a human in between to at least yell out when something goes wrong. Right. But when you get to the higher levels, most people end up in a discretionary money management environment with some kind of investment counselor, portfolio manager that is more customizable to them from a tax point of view and also is more proactive in terms of risk management and volatility. Right. And what's missed in this robo advisor conversation that is of paramount importance is that if the argument of a robo-advisor is really kind of back to efficient market theory and, you know, active management isn't going to outperform, so we're going to buy ETFs, we're going to pick a 
strategic asset allocation based on your profile. We're going to rebalance to that, right? We're going to do that until you tell us to change the strategic asset allocation. We're doing nothing tactical along the way, right? There will be ones that have a tactical overlay, but that's not going to be customized. That's going to be to this bucket that you're in, right? right? So that works fine during accumulation, and it works fine when you're just saving systematically, making monthly deposits to a portfolio. When it is that somebody's ready to retire and they're going to draw down out of that, that doesn't work anymore. Why doesn't that work? Because we have this thing called the flaw of averages that is hugely impactful to people in decumulation or drawdown in retirement, right? Let me explain what I mean by that. If you take kind of any standard planning software, we have to make a whole host of assumptions that go into this hopper and it spits out a result for us, right? Right. So one of the most critical assumptions is how much money are we going to make on our money? What's our rate of return going to be, right? And that's mm-hmm. going to be a static number in any of these plans. And sometimes it's a function of an asset allocation that we're making assumptions about the different pieces. And sometimes we're just making a blanket assumption that on average we're going to earn X, right? So let's say that that X is 6 or 7%. I saw another version of a plan the other day that still used 10%. I thought that was pretty amusing. But it, let's say it's 6% now, which is on the high end of what we're allowed to use if you're a financial planner, right? You really should be using more like 4 according to our professional guidelines, right? And that's a whole other problem that we get into at a different point in time. But the problem with this is when you do a retirement income plan for somebody, we're doing that with the goal to produce some kind of after-tax spendable cash on an annual basis going forward throughout the remainder of their life. And we usually want that to be indexed to inflation, right? So that number, let's say it's $100,000 a year. That number is a constant. We're going to take out $100,000 every year indexed to inflation. That 6% return that we used is an average. So in mathematics, when you start to apply a constant to an average, we're not doing math anymore. We're writing a fantasy novel. So the problem with this when we're drawing down is that without volatility management, without smoothing out that curve, it doesn't matter if we get that 6 or 7%. If that comes with ups and downs that if we're using an ETF-based portfolio rebalance to target, you're going to get the full weight of all market gyration. That's just by definition what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That destroys the longevity of a portfolio. So if you take this standard calculator that says that 6 or 7% is going to give me this $100,000 a year for 30 years, if I go back and run that through a pattern of actual market history that produced that average rate of return, I see that 30 years become usually anywhere between 15 and 18. Massive difference. It's not a small problem. It's a gigantic problem, right? So this is why there's a huge gap in the value proposition of that model. Mm -hmm. Because when you start to decumulate and when you start to spend money, Mm -hmm. volatility is as important, if not more important, than your rate of return. You can get by with a lower average rate of return with very little volatility than a higher rate with the wild mood swings, right? So this is why at the top end, people that have money will be seeking out managers and investment counselors that have a system in place to meet out that volatility and smooth the curve, right? And it's the other part that's always left out when people talk about active management very rarely beats passive management. When you do those calculations on a risk-adjusted basis, unit of return per unit of risk, it's a lot more even, right? 
But when you then lay on drawing down out systematically, volatility becomes extremely important. This is really, really interesting. And uh, you know what? We, we can probably have another podcast episode out of it. And I do have some questions. We'll probably continue offline with that. This is really interesting how you're actually positioned because really, really the value proposition here is becoming clear for new advisors. If you can help with, uh, especially with decumulation, I mean, there's a lot of value you can create for people because there, there is a big problem out there. So let's leave it at that for now. I want to ask you two other questions before we wrap up here. So what are some of the projects you are most excited in your business right now? Is there anything that you're working on right now that's uh, my, my more exciting than, than uh, regular business? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know if it's exciting, but one of the things that I'm trying to do now is... And I mentioned to you before, and if you went to my website, you'd see a, a header in the menu bar there called Willing, Willing Wisdom Index, which is a, a tool developed by Tom Deans, who's the author of Every Family's Business, and the book Willing Wisdom, which is an excellent tool to help clients jumpstart that kind of estate planning conversation with their families. And it, it's really just an effort to try and reduce the number of Canadians that are out there without a valid or up-to-date will. And it's a completely staggering situation when you parse it out. And one of the recent studies done by, I think it was a company that does like will kits, I think it was legal wills, and it, it really showed in their response rate that only about a quarter of Canadian folks, families, individuals, have a valid and up-to-date will. So valid meaning it's legally valid, up-to-date meaning it represents their current wishes, right? And of course, we'd assume or we would expect that a whole bunch of young people don't really have a need for it. You know, if you're 18, 19, 20, so what, I don't have a will, I don't really care, right? But when you go into the older ages, it doesn't get any better. Only about a quarter of 35 to 44-year-olds had a valid and up-to-date will, and only about half of people over 65 have a valid and and up-to-date will. Hmm. So that is a world of pain waiting for whoever's participating in those estates particularly if there's anybody who's dependent on those, mm-hmm. if that many people are to pass away into state mm-hmm. and leave behind the kind of wealth that those age groups have. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about the baby boomers and what they're going to inherit from their parents. There is, you know, a trillion dollars that is in a transition and a lot of it would be caught into state if those statistics are even close to right. So, I'm on a little bit of a mission right now to try and make sure that my clients don't make up any part of that number and also anybody else in my circle, you know, family and friends, you know, some kind of instigator, some kind of catalyst to put something in place. And it's not an expensive thing to do, but people have a mental barrier to doing it, right? But the consequences of not doing it can be pretty extreme in terms of cost and inefficiency and just hardship on those that you don't want to impose hardship on. I think you have identified another big problem. So, so that's great. So if anybody is interested, maybe taking a closer look at what you're doing, maybe connect with you or partner up with you and help you with a mission that they can go to your, go, go to your website and, and take a look at that. We'll also link it up in the show notes here. Two questions before we wrap up. So this, uh, Jamie, this podcast is all about growing your practice. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? So just one thing. Just keep doing the right thing over and over and eventually the right things will happen. It's very enticing to find out how somebody else was successful and try and replicate that. But if you're not the same type of individual, it's very hard to make it work. You have to figure out who you are, 
how you want to deliver your services and then try and attract the people that fit with that and then do those things over and over again. And hopefully you'll have the same result as I did. And, and eventually the right things will start to happen. You'll have the kind of success that you want. These are wise words. Don't try to imitate anybody else. Be the, Just choose your own path. So Jamie, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, maybe talk with you or collaborate on some of the, the projects or maybe ask you for some mentorship advice, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach uh, you? Probably probably just by email, which is just Jamie, J-A-M-I-E at fiduciawealth.ca. Make sure you got a .ca. And to, to the mentorship issue, I'm available. <laughs> I, you know, for years, I've been kind of looking for somebody to, to mentor a bit, and I need to groom some kind of long-term support system in my practice. So I'm certainly open to that as well. Oh, that's excellent. And uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure some people can uh, take a, take you up on that offer. So that's, uh, that's great you mentioned that uh, here. So Jamie, this was fantastic. I really appreciate the conversation. And I think you showed a lot of really transparent advice and how you build your business. So this was, it's been a lot of fun for me to listen as well. So thank you very much for coming on the show. It was my pleasure, Pavel. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's always nice to chat with you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate if you left us a great review in iTunes because that helps us get discovered. And if you want to get in touch with us, please email podcast at snapprojections.com. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next time.